Each year, the Justice Department churns out lots of data about criminal justice. Recently, it launched an initiative to prod state and local governments to use that data more effectively to make policy and budget decisions. Here with how this all works, the acting deputy director for policy at the Bureau of Justice Assistance, Ruby Kozelbosch. Ms. Kozelbosch, good to have you on. Thank you so much. Let's begin at the beginning. There's a lot of bureaus at the Justice Department, and just those that are uninitiated help sort us out. The Bureau of Justice Assistance, where does that fit into the whole beehive of the Justice Department? I like to say that the Bureau of Justice Assistance, or BJA, is on that branch of the Department of Justice tree that reaches out to states and localities and tribes. And our mission is to support and strengthen criminal justice systems within states and localities and tribes. The branch of our tree is named the Office of Justice Programs, and on that branch along with the Bureau of Justice Assistance are the statistical arm of the department, the Bureau of Justice Statistics, the research arm, the National Institute of Justice, and others too that focus on victims' issues as well as juvenile justice issues. Our primary focus is on the adult criminal justice system. Right, and the criminal justice system itself then comprises both the police and law enforcement end as well as courts and sentencing and that whole process end, correct? You got it. All right. The initiative that you have going, give us a sense of the type of data, first of all, that's even available to states and localities and tribes that you generate, and how does it get generated? Well, there are data gaps for sure. While every state is different, though, we consistently find that agencies collect data that would be useful for policymakers and the public, but they don't necessarily release those data or they release them infrequently, or they release them in ways that don't lend themselves to drive policymaking uh, in a data-driven way. And the Justice Counts state data scan, something that we did across all 50 states and looking at corrections data, for instance, to see what was out there, clearly illustrates a trend. So, for example, 38 states report their prison populations at least monthly, but less than half of states report their post-release supervision population at the same rate. So, while state participation is critical to the success of initiatives like Justice Counts, we think the federal government is uniquely situated to really catalyze the kind of coordinated, substantial effort that's necessary to change the face of criminal justice data. So, in Justice Counts, you have the federal government that's providing the infrastructure, the instruction, and some in-state support to make these metrics real potentially for every criminal justice agency that you just talked about. So whether that is law enforcement or prosecutors or defense, jails, the court system, prisons, community supervision. Um, And we think that the federal government has a key role here in helping state and local agencies on these issues related to data, and Justice Counts is an effort to do just that. So again, most agencies already collect lots of data and have systems and policies and protocols for maintaining it and analyzing it. The resources that Justice Counts will provide, which will be the metrics, a technology platform, and technical assistance, and more. And what we're hoping to do with that is to help states and localities do more with what they already collect And then that'll provide policymakers with some key and timely information to support data-driven policymaking within the criminal justice arena. What about those states and localities and tribes that don't want to make it public necessarily or figure they just gather it for their own purposes, but 
I guess politics comes into this at different levels and different locales in different ways. It sure does. And we are hoping, just as any database, the fuller and more complete the data that are available for criminal justice policymakers to get more of a bird's eye view and to fill in as many puzzle pieces as possible is going to help them drive more data-driven policymaking. This is an opt-in approach. The Bureau of Justice Assistance is really in the business of making grant funding tools and resources available for states and localities and tribes, and that's what Justice Counts is another example of. So we are bringing together the Bureau of Justice Assistance in partnership with an organization called the Council of State Governments Justice Center, and then 21 different partner organizations representing associations and different groups that represent all those different parts of the criminal justice system that I talked about that are working together to achieve consensus to identify kind of that baseline. What are those kind of you know, duh metrics, so to speak, that we should already be collecting and would be easy for us. It's a feasible metric for us to collect and also to share. And so we'll be putting the the metrics out there and making those publicly available, announcing those later this spring, providing just a technology platform for those that want to opt in and share publicly with their peer organizations within their jurisdiction to bubble up to take a look at the state or potentially to look and compare across jurisdictions, for instance, with a neighboring jurisdiction. So this is not a, a strong arm approach. This is a resource that we're providing to states and localities and tribes to opt into in hopes to make information more readily available to people that need it, but also the public. We're speaking with Ruby Kozelbosch. She's the acting deputy director for policy at the Bureau of Justice Assistance at the Justice Department. And do you see this potentially also, this data rolling up to fill in gaps that the federal government collects at the federal, say the FBI level has crime statistics that are national in scope? Could these combined data sets from the locales enhance what's available nationally? We have a lot of rigorous data sets already, obviously, that the FBI collects through NIBRS, the National Incident-Based Reporting System, that are intended and built to be aggregated to speak about and be nationally representative. We also have the Bureau of Justice Statistics that engages in statistical collections for various statutory and other purposes. This is not meant to replace any of them, but like I said, is rather a resource for states and localities and tribes to be able to identify core sets of metrics that their policymakers can use to drive decisions. So there's lots of things that they need to know, whether that's about populations as they move through the system, operational aspects, but we don't have criminal justice agencies that are collecting the same metrics defined similarly and aggregating them and looking at trends over the time. This gives them the opportunity to do that. And do you feel there might be localities out there that would like to get into the data business knowing that it can result in better decision-making and better government, but maybe just don't have the experience or the technology to do so in the first place? I sure hope so. Yeah. What these metrics do is really get everyone. So policymakers, state and local criminal justice agency leaders, advocates on the same page about what to look at, what to share, what to consider when making policy decisions. And the metrics are also the basis of agency focus tools, the public facing platform that we'll develop and other resources that we'll develop through Justice Counts. To create them, we really asked ourselves two questions. One, um, does the metric convey useful information to policymakers? And two, is it feasible? 
so for each metric, a feasibility kind of rating, and we're only including those that exceed that threshold. So is the metric really feasible for most agencies to be able to collect and share? Basically, do most agencies have the data necessary to produce it? And there's a really wide range of potential metrics that could be helpful for research and analysis, but if agencies don't have the data or can't get it, it won't work. And we found that no two agencies are identical, so being flexible and kind of calibrating our approach towards feasibility was really important to us. And we also realized that we've got to walk before we can run, so we'll be starting with a handful of metrics, tier one of metrics, so to speak, and then gradually expanding down the road as agencies really become more accustomed to using the metrics and the associated data platform that we'll be standing up. Now, is there money involved here? That is, if a situation, if a local government wants to get onto that technology platform, wants to access the metrics, is it at their expense? If there is an expense, is there grants available? How does it work from that standpoint? Right now, later this spring, we will be releasing that tier one or the handful of kind of indispensable metrics that we really hope every justice agency will be able to commit to will be possible for them to collect and share at least locally. We have technical assistance that will be available for anyone that wants to adopt the metric and use the platform and how to use it. Later this year, we hope to release a solicitation that will make funding available to states to help with capacity building at the state level, and that can also drill down and assist local jurisdictions or agencies in local jurisdictions participate as well. And just to be clear, besides giving them the means to collect the data and store it in an organized way, there's also information, tools, whatever available to help localities use the data and create analysis on how they can better do budgeting or better change other policies throughout their criminal justice systems? We are still building out the full data platform, and in the future, having some analytical tools built in would be a great thing to include, but I can't say right now that's included in the full build-out. All right. And is there a timeline to this? Is there a deadline to it, or is this going to be a kind of perpetual program as different state and local and tribal governments sign on? Yeah, well, we'll be announcing the launching the, there are tier one metrics later on this spring. Jurisdictions can look for a solicitation. Other federal agencies call them different things, requests for proposals or notice of funding availability. At the Department of Justice, we call them solicitations. So states can look for a solicitation that will be released later this funding season, this spring, for funding to support But if agencies are interested in participating as soon as they're released, technical assistance will be available to them to get support to do that. Ruby Kozelbosch is the Acting Deputy Director for Policy at the Bureau of Justice Assistance at the Justice Department. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access 
to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have 
ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, You know, there are not a lot of us. Um, You know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.